In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the first message after Jesus has died. He's buried, he's risen again, and now he's with the Father, and Peter is preaching. And he preaches of who Jesus is. Of his death on the cross and his resurrection, he preached a message of truth and of salvation. And the people, the Bible tells us, they were pierced to the heart. That word translated really means they were stabbed. They were pierced to the heart, the message they were, they were receiving. By what Peter was saying, they were pierced that they had missed Jesus. They were pierced to the heart by the reality that they were responsible for his crucifixion. And in verse 37, they asked a question which a lot of us have asked or should ask, and it's this, what shall we do? We've heard the gospel preached, now what shall we do? And Peter says to them, really he is just reiterating what Jesus has been saying for all of us to do when we encounter Jesus. And the first thing that he tells them to do is repent. So repent. That's a word that we don't like to say a lot anymore. It's really not a bad word. Repent really means to to have a change in your heart, change in your mind, change in your direction. So instead of living in and for your sin, instead of living for yourself and for the world, Jesus is calling on us to respond to him by turning from our sin, turning to Jesus, to be saved, and then respond by living in obedience and worship to Jesus And really that first step of obedience is to be baptized, right? When we come to know Christ, that first step of obedience is to be baptized. That helps us identify with Christ and identify with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we see a very familiar uh, verse for us out of verse 42 in Acts chapter 2. But it's such a rich and great picture of how these believers, these new Christians, these new followers of Christ began to live and do life together. And I've got it up here. It says this. It says they, these are the new Christians, the, the, the church, right? They were continually devoting themselves. Now, the rest of it, this is how they did life. right? This is what they were devoted to and championed in their life. This is what would be evident to the world around them in their life. They, t- they together, they came together and they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was the word of God and, and the life and words of Jesus. So they're devoted to the teaching and they're devoted to fellowship. Now a lot of times we look at that word fellowship and we think like potluck or something like that, but that word, which is part of it, but that word fellowship is actually a partnership, right? It's a partnership. And so they are they are partners in their walk with Christ and in his mission. So it's a dedication to doing life together. So they're devoted to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do today, and also to prayer. And this morning, we're going to get to do those things together. In our time, we're going to continue to spend time in worship, in song, taking the Lord's Supper together, hearing from the Word of God, and having time in prayer. And our hope this morning is this is that our time with Jesus and our time together this morning, it's going to send us out of here refreshed, encouraged, and even challenged, right? We want, to, we want to look more like Jesus than when we came in. Amen, church? And so we want to be ready to walk with him and live for him as we go out into the world. As a church family, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, and we're seeing the life and the ministry of Jesus We're seeing his life, we're reading his words and seeing his actions and learning how to respond to his call in our life. And I'm going to be honest with you, I can't think of, I don't think there's a better way for us to grow in our walk with Christ than to spend time with him, right? When I was getting to know Jessica a little bit, I'm going to 
get better at my walk with her by spending time with her, right? There's something wrong if we're not doing that, right? And so we want to spend time with him. And so as we're walking through the study, we're going to continue to do that. But here's the thing. We can't just come to church and, and, and for me, okay, I study and I preach it and then do nothing with that. And we hear the word of God and we might say some amens or we might say I'm with you. We might write down some notes. But if that doesn't translate into a life change, what has it done? Are you with me? So we look at the life of Jesus and we hear the word of God and it changes us. And the hope is this, that we see in Jesus' life and see in his word, the word of God, and that it will radically change us personally and as corporately as a church. We'll be changed. To be changed in such a way that our life is described as being joyfully and continually devoted to God's word. You ever see a Christian that walks around like they've got nothing in the world to smile about? Man, I don't, I don't. I don't know what they're missing. Are you with me? Like, that's not the Jesus that I follow, right? I'm not saying they're not following Jesus. I'm just saying that we have everything to be joyful about. And so they're devoted, joyfully and continually devoted to God's word, to fellowship, to partnered with one another, taking Lord's Supper together, and being devoted to God in prayer. In our relationship with him, we want to be dependent on God. Are you with me? And so we do that in prayer. And so this morning, if you've got your Bibles... We're going to pick up where we left off last week, Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty of them. Grab one at the end of your row. If you need a Bible, slip your hand up. We'll get you one. I want to make sure, and it's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. Make sure you, you have that this morning. But Mark chapter 3, Mark is in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. You've got Matthew and then Mark, Luke, and John. So, Matt, so we're going to turn to Mark chapter 3. And as you're turning there... Give a little bit of recap leading up to this point in the life of Jesus and in his ministry that we see in Mark. And as we looked at last week as well, there are a few things that have become evident to us as we study this. One is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is the gospel. He is the good news for us. He is the promised Messiah, the promised one that was going to come to be the savior of the world. And that's become evident to us. The other thing is this. He is showing the world who he is. It's not just said, but Jesus is showing us who he is. And we'll see some of that in our text today, who Jesus is. And we're seeing this evidence, right, in his life. We're seeing that he's God. We're seeing he's the Messiah. We're seeing that that he is showing that. But we're also going to see evidence that the Pharisees, these religious leaders, with all their knowledge and all their training and understanding of the Old Testament, they just should have seen the evidence presented in the life of Jesus and known who Jesus was. They should have been able to see that all of it lines up with the scripture that they had memorized or that they knew and that they taught. And they should have seen that Jesus is who he says he is. And based off of that, another thing that's evident out of us, out of this passage, uh, book of Mark, leading up to this point is this. (coughs) The Pharisees refused to accept who Jesus was. The evidence was there and they rejected it. They either flat out missed it or they rejected it. And their heart started to show that. And we we see that as Jesus, he would heal and he would speak and he would serve and he would do what he came to do. The Pharisees began to watch and they began to wonder and they began to ask questions. And then they began to accuse him like we saw last week and also that they sought to destroy the one that came to save them. And the last reality that became evident out of Mark up to this point is this. Jesus was on a mission. 
And nothing was going to derail that mission. Nothing was going to stop him from calling them to repentance and calling them into a relationship with him. That nothing was going to stop him from healing and teaching, right? Nothing was going to stop him from, from being our Savior. And we should shout amen to that one, church. Are you with me? Right? Nothing stopped him from being the Savior that this world so desperately needs. And last week, in the verses leading up to where we are today, we read in verse 6. So Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. The Herodians were really more of a political group, right? They identified with Herod. And so the Pharisees lined up with and conspired with the Herodians against him, against Jesus, as to how they might destroy him. And that brings us to our text today, verse 7, and we're going to read through. Uh, 19. Let's read that together. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Samaria, and from Edomiah, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of, of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd. So that they would not crowd him. Verse 10. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that's talking about demonic, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up, up, up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So we're familiar with that name, right? Simon is Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, and and the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray, guys. God, we love you. We thank you that we get to walk through the word of God, and we just, we get to see your life. We get to read your words, and see your actions. God, we pray, Lord, today, that today would be a day that we make much of Jesus. And God, I'm just going to throw this out there. There's somebody sitting here today that says, you know what, I, I don't know Jesus. I pray today that through the Holy Spirit and through the, 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 the word of God that that would become evident who Jesus is and that he loves them so very much and that he died for them and wants a new life for them. So God, if there's somebody here today that does not know Jesus, we pray today that, that today might be that day that they begin that new life with you. Be with us today, God, as we uh, seek you and learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark has given us a reminder here, especially in the first part of the text of who Jesus is and how that was demonstrated in his life. That's kind of what we're going to look at. We're going to look at ways that Jesus demonstrated who he is in this first part. And really for us, as we sit here, as we stand and sing and we take the Lord's Supper here in a little bit and we seek God in prayer, it's important for us to know who Jesus is. Are you guys with me? Man, it's important to know who Jesus is. It was important for them here to know that, that, that who Jesus was. They're in the presence of Jesus and some of them are missing it or rejecting him. It's important to know who Jesus is and he's making it known to them. By what he says and what he does. It's pretty incredible, even in the early, this early in the earthly ministry of Jesus, what he is doing. 
what Jesus is doing is just nothing but incredible, and people are noticing. Right, we in our prayer time before, by the way, if you're not a part of that prayer time and you can be here at 10, kids' life is open, great prayer time, 10 o'clock till about 10.20. And we were just praying that, that people would, that, that God would do, move in our life and it would just become evident. And then we would tell others about Jesus and others would see Jesus in us. And people are noticing and they are, they're, they're seeing what Jesus is doing, they're hearing about it, the news is spreading. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 28, it says that immediately the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. So just kind of keep that in mind. they got the city of Galilee where Jesus is at, and the news is spreading quickly around the areas of that. And now look at this in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Now, if you weren't here when we talked about this before, remember Jesus would go to the shore. Right? Jesus is going to go to the shore because he'd have more room. A lot of times whenever he is preaching or teaching, it's going to be from a porch or from under a tree or somewhere where it'd be a small gathering. But if he knew it was going to be a large gathering, he would go where more could gather, up to thousands, really. Um, I, I want to say this, I'm not sure his intent was to gather people at this point because he, he knows that the Pharisees are seeking to destroy him. So it might have been to get away from them, we don't really know. But, but the crowd that's going to gather didn't catch Jesus by surprise, so he goes to a place where people can gather and he could tend to them. And it says that they're at the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomiah, and beyond the Jordan in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Keep in mind, this is when we think about their context and what they're going through, news didn't travel by social media. Are you with me? Like they didn't have, I know I joke about it, but Jesus. Jesus didn't have a Facebook page, you know, are you with me? Like, it just didn't happen, right? They didn't have Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever it is. It, it traveled, news traveled when people traveled, right? That's how it happened. And they weren't traveling by cars or planes. Are you with me? Yeah, okay, we just want to make sure we're on the same page. They didn't have cars and planes in that time, all right? And so the news is traveling of who Jesus was. It starts spreading like a wildfire, and it was in Galilee and then in surrounding areas. And now people are coming from all over the place up to 120 miles away to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, to see what is happening. His fame is surpassing anything they had ever seen. The Bible tells us they had never seen anything like this. Right? They were amazed because they had never seen anything like this. His fame is just surpassing all of that. And it's not just the Jews coming at this point. The places that are mentioned, some are Jewish and some have right, Gentiles or Greeks. I mean, people are coming. It doesn't matter what social background they're from. People are coming to Jesus. In verse 9, And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. That first word crowd is talking about a multitude of people. The second word crowd is actually a different word in the Greek. It actually carries the meaning to press, to crush, or to push forward. Are you with me? So he's, he's, he's got this boat lined up so that if, in case they start pressing in, he's got a boat he can step into. Jesus is kind of smart, right? And they didn't really have, like, crowd control. Doug, you would be my crowd control. I'm just letting you know, right? A couple, right? Chuck, maybe, Jay, right? We got my crowd control. I don't know. But, but yeah, you know, you guys with me. But, but they didn't really have, like, hired security, so they got this boat, right? And so I don't imagine, you know, that, 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 uh, that the security might have done really that good of a job anyways. I mean, we're talking thousands of people. But church, this is who Jesus is, right? 
who he is, what he says and and does is, is powerful. The things that he has said and done that gathered this crowd is powerful. Even the mention of his name and who he is is powerful. And in the first six verses, we get to see a bit of who Jesus is and see him demonstrate who he is for us. And the first one we've talked about a bit, we'll talk about it a little bit more, is this. Jesus demonstrates his power. Jesus demonstrates his power. On the back of your bulletin, you've got a place for notes if you want to use that. We see that he's gained the attention of many by his, by his power. Verse 10, when this huge crowd right, is there, that, that, that power continues. It says, for he had healed many. He had the power to heal with the result that those who had these afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. He has the power, church. right? We follow a powerful Jesus. Are you with me? Right, we, have a, we, we follow a powerful Jesus. There is power in who he is and what he does and what he says. His power, what he is able to do. It says in verse 8 that a great number of people heard of what he was doing. And they came to him. And it's going to tie right into the second thing that Jesus demonstrates. They go hand in hand. Jesus demonstrates who he is by his power. But this goes hand in hand with this one. Jesus demonstrates his authority. Jesus demonstrates his authority. It's hard to really separate those two with Jesus. Are you with me? Like he's showing, he's showing that he not only has the power to do what he needs to do, but he has the authority to accomplish it as well. Sometimes we see the power in Jesus and we reach out to him when we need him, like we're sick or, or something else is going on. God, you know, help me win the lottery. I don't know. You probably shouldn't pray that way. You get what I'm saying? Like, like we, we, we reach out. To, nobody laughed at that at all? No. Okay, there we go. Jamie, I got a courtesy laugh maybe, right? Gosh. All right. I don't even know where I'm at. All right. I'm on the stage. He has the power to do what he needs to do. We look at Jesus sometimes as powerful, but not with authority. God, we're going to reach out to you when we need you for you to accomplish what we want you to accomplish. But we've got to look at Jesus with authority. And he is the head over us. He is the head over the church. He is the head over all things. One day, every knee will bow to him. Right? So he has the power to accomplish, and he has the authority to accomplish and we continue to see that throughout the book of Mark. Just, look, just listen to this. You guys, some of you guys will remember this. In chapter 1, Jesus shows his authority over the temptation from Satan. He shows his authority. He shows his authority in his words and teachings. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says that they were amazed at his teaching. As he was teaching them as one having authority. So there was power and authority in his teaching and his words. A few, a few verses later, Jesus shows his power and his authority over the demonic, over the enemy. This is great, right? I love this. Verse 25, there's a man that's possessed, and Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet. We got any? No, everybody's okay with this. He's really telling him to shut up. That's really what he's telling him to do. He's saying, shut up and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, what do they do? They shut up and they come out. He's got the authority over the enemy. He has the power over the enemy. Jesus goes on to heal. He does this throughout Mark. In in, in chapter 1, verse uh, 32, when evening came, he had already healed Peter's mother-in-law. But when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door, and he what? Church, he... he, Let's work on this one. All right, H-E-A-L-E-D, healed. Ready? And he what? Church, he, he healed. And Jesus continues to do that. 
He heals a paralytic man, right? Jamie preached about that a few weeks back. He heals a man that had, that had leprosy. He heals a man that had a withered hand. And in our text today, for he healed many with the result of all those with that, that had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. This is the Jesus we have the opportunity to follow and love and sing to and worship and serve. And he is powerful and he is authoritative. Are you with me? That's who we get to serve. And we can't miss this. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 11. Check out this power and authority. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him. Now, before we looked at it and we said that he told them to shut up and come out. Are you with me? But check what it doesn't say that. It says when they saw him. This is pretty important that's going to lead into our third demonstration by Jesus. The, the phrase here used in the New Testament in their language to fall before. It's used throughout the New Testament in their language here to convey the image of an inferior prostrating. Are you with me? Literally and physically submitting themselves before a superior. That's what's happening, right? We have that here, an unclean spirit that has taken control of a person, right? A very powerful being that is now just by seeing Jesus, they are falling down before him. Right? This is big, church. This is power and this is authority. The enemy of Jesus literally submitting to the power and authority of Jesus. That's the Jesus we serve. Amen? That's who Jesus is. And that same verse leads us into this. When Jesus demonstrates his power, he demonstrates his authority. In church, dem Jesus demonstrates his deity. You know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I'm God. I'm God. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that he is a God. As some like to mistranslate. He's not saying that somehow he was a spiritual being and earned Godship. As some teach. I'm not hating on anybody. It's just not true. Right? He's not one of many gods. No, he is claiming and proving and demonstrating that he is in fact God. We see that in the opening of Mark where Mark presents Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, meaning the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? That the Trinity, all equally God, all one, all unified, but all with different persons and responsibilities. Are you with me? Right? I mean, it's really tough to understand. I get all of that, right? It's, there's nothing that we have that really can compare. But he's God. We also see Jesus confirmed in his baptism. That he is in fact God. The Father speaks and the Holy Spirit descends onto him. He shows it in his power and his authority. He shows his power and authority in a way that only God can do. And we even see him now. This is huge, church. He forgives a man of his sins. Right? According to the law, according to the Old Testament, according to the, all that is true, only God has the power to forgive sins. Thank you, God, for that. Right? And Jesus does it. He forgives sins, like right in front of everybody. And then here in verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him, and they, they didn't whisper. They didn't kind of say it a little bit. They didn't only write it on their windows or put it on their social media page. These demons, they shouted, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Really what he's saying is, I'm, I'm going to present myself. I'm going to identify myself, right? I, I don't need you to do it. Plus, I don't really want a demon running around talking about, right? But this is what he's doing. The demons, the enemies, they aren't bowing down for the fun of it. 
They're not bowing down before, for the fun of it or because he's this really cool, powerful guy. Right? Not because he's the goat or anything like that. Greatest of all time. You guys get, okay. Right? They fall down before him because of this, church. Because he is powerful, because he has the authority, and because he's the living God. Are you with me? In John 1, 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word is a person. Let's just track with me. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things come into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. I don't know who this word is yet, but he must be a really, he must be a big dude. He's God, right? We skip down to verse 14 and it says who he is. And the word became, say it with me, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God came and became flesh, fully God, fully man, and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. He is the word that John is talking about, and he is fully God, and he is on full display, right? This is who Jesus is. And you know, well, here's a sad reality in this. Even the demons recognized who Jesus is. The enemy falls down before him. But the religious leaders that should have known who he was, they either missed him or they rejected him. The people that were gathered around, I would love to say that all those people that were gathered around him came because they want him to be their savior, right? But they're just like the people today, right? Some came because he was the cool guy in town, right? Some people came because they just wanted to see what he could offer them. He's doing some cool, powerful, miraculous things. Maybe we'll get a healing from him. They didn't really care who he was. They just wanted what he had to offer. And others came because they wanted Jesus. They wanted to follow Jesus and to be forgiven by Jesus. They wanted him. So you've got all of these people. When we hear of Jesus, let me ask you guys this question. When we hear of Jesus, when we read of Jesus, when we see the evidence of him in our life or in other people's lives, when someone has told you about Jesus, how do you respond to Jesus. How do you respond to Jesus? How do we often come to Jesus? Do we recognize who he is? Do we recognize his power, his authority, and that he is God with us? We sing about it at Christmas time and we have all these things that says Emmanuel. Great, big deal, it's a Christmas word. No, that's a name for Jesus. That means God with us. Jesus came from up above of perfection. And he came down and he humbled himself to be with us. Are you with me? It makes no sense. A gracious God that humbled himself because you and I have sin in our life. And Jesus says, I'm in, man. Right? The Father says, here's the plan. Jesus says, let's go. And he comes and he's born, not in like, a, like, like the biggest, baddest hospital with, with news television recording all that stuff. He is born in a, more likely in a cave, right, with animals and born in a horse trough, like laid in a horse trough. Are you guys with me? He humbled himself to recognize with the lowliest of lowly. And then he lives this life and he dies for us. We can all just take, you know, probably three seconds and come up with a hundred sins in our life. And he died for every single one of those. For you. That's the gospel. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. But Jesus died for you. And he rose again. Let's not miss who Jesus is. Because Jesus requires a response. We reject him or we trust and receive him. That's our options. 
And we come to verse 13. Let's read that together. And he went up onto the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed twelve. So we've seen the power and the authority and that he is God. And then Jesus goes onto the mountain and he's calling the twelve disciples. We're familiar with those, right? The twelve disciples. Some have already been called at this point, right? And they're already following him. But this is a a moment where he is calling all twelve and he calls them to be apostles. And if we look at the detail, <clears throat> excuse me, that Luke gives us, we see that before Jesus does this, before he calls them, he reminds them of the necessity of prayer. While he's still fully God, he's still fully man. How often do we seek Jesus last? Right? He seeks him first. We have the necessity, right? We we have to seek God. Luke 6:12 says this. It was at that time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. This wasn't a five-minute prayer. This isn't, well, I woke up, God, I want to start my day off with you, right? Here's 30 seconds of my life. Now make, give me the, the best blessed day ever. Are you with me? This is all night, church. All night. And when day came, he called the disciples, his disciples, to him, and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. By the way, let's throw this out there. To name someone gives you authority. Are you with me? What did, what did uh, Adam get? He got the authority to name those animals. Jesus has the authority to name whoever he wants, and he's showing that. Jesus was about to call and name the 12 that he would do life with, that, he would, that would be with him and serve with him. And, and, and the, the Father spent, he and the Father spent time together all night long before he called them. And in Mark, Jesus continues to show that he has the authority and that he is God. It says that he summoned them. He chose them. He called them, and he's calling them for a purpose. By the way, every single person in here is being called by Jesus. We have to respond to that calling. He's calling them to be his disciples. They were going to be his students, right? They were going to be his apprenticeship, apprentices. They, they were going to be in a significant relationship with him, to follow his lead and to be obedient to him, to be his disciples meant that your life would reflect his that's the thing. A lot of times we look at teachers, right? We go to college, we go to class, we, we look at the teachers like, I'm going to be nothing like you, right? But he's calling it, it's different. It's not just a student-teacher relationship. It's like, I'm, I'm the man and you need to become more like the man. Are you with me? That's the relationship. That is what a disciple is. We too, when we come to know Christ, we are called to be his disciples and to bring other people into that. So the Bible says in Matthew 28 that we're to make disciples. We're called to learn from Christ, to follow him, to imitate him, to be obedient to him, and live in a life that reflects him. And then one day, we'll be with him for eternity. No more of the junk of this world and the sickness of this world and all that other junk. It's just we get to be with him. And so Jesus calls the twelve. I'm going to skip verses 14 and 15. We'll come back to them, but this is who he calls. He appointed the twelve Simon, which is Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to, to them he gave the name Barnergis, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and sons of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. He's identifying who that is that will eventually betray Jesus. Here's the cool part. When we think about the church, when we think about who's going to be in heaven, different people. Right? Different backgrounds, different families, different giftings, different personalities brought together, unified by Jesus. Are you, are you getting that picture of what he's doing? He has the power and authority to gather people together to be unified for him and by him. 
for him and for his purpose because he is powerful and the authority and he is God. And he brings salvation. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. Amen, church? These 12 different people called together by Jesus for Jesus. I think we miss that sometimes, right? We go, man, what can I get out of the people of God? Or what can, you know, it's like, no, we are called for him. What are we going to do that's going to honor him? Unified, together, devoted to Jesus and his teaching. We go back to Acts chapter 2, 42. They were devoted to the fellowship. They weren't just devoted to pizza parties, church. Right? They were devoted to the fellowship, the partnership. Devoted to learning from him and devoted to his mission. We know that to become a disciple, we must deny ourselves. Why are we denying ourselves? Because we are following him. Disciples. Jesus calls every disciple. And here is what he is calling them to do. Don't miss this because this is what he's calling us to do. Are you guys with me? This is big. Verse 14 and 15. And he, Jesus, appointed 12 so that they would be with him. And that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Track with me, church. Are you ready? It says, so that they will be with him. Right? Jesus calls every disciple to be with him. That's huge. Don't miss that. We get this this thought like it's all about religion and what we need to do to earn God. And that we can't earn God, right? So we try to do before we're with him. We're doing it backwards. There's an author and commentator, John's, or James R. Edwards, that says this. The simple prepositional phrase, to be with him, has atomic significance in the gospel of Mark. And he goes on to say this. Discipleship is a relationship before it's a task. A who before a what. Jesus is calling us into a relationship with him. We have, the, we have the, the illustration of adoption into the family of God. Are you with me? Like we've adopted, my family has adopted, and we, we're not worrying about what our adopted kids are going to do. We're worried about bringing them in and giving them my name. Are you with me? And our life, and that's what he's doing here. He's saying, come into a relationship with me. The call to follow Jesus, the fall to give your life to the one that came to save you and forgive you and to give you a new, uh, forgive you and give you a new life. It's a personal call. It's a call that we must respond to. I'm going to lay this out here. I've talked to, in fact, I talked to somebody this past week that said I was a Christian from birth. Sorry, dude. That's not how it works. We're born into sin. Are you with me? I wish that was the case, but that's not how it works. It's not your mom's faith that saves you. It's not someone else's faith that saves you or your grandma's. We are personally called by Jesus and we must personally respond. The call to follow Jesus is a relationship. You've heard people say, being a Christian is not about religion, it's about a relationship. And I know it's annoying to hear that, but it's so true, right? It's about a relationship. We do what we do because of our relationship with him. To be with him. On your notes and up on the board, it says this, to turn to him, to follow him, to be with him and learn from him. What's your response? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you still turning to him and following him? Now, let me clarify. I'm not talking about losing your salvation or turning away from any of that. The Bible's very clear. If you know Christ as your personal savior and that has happened in your life, man, we are saved until the day, we are sealed until the day of redemption. 
Are you with me? That's not, what he's, that's not what I'm saying here. I'm asking this. If you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple, right, an ambassador, are you still turning to him daily? Are you following him and not yourself or the world? Are you with him? Are you with him? My wife sent me a text message. We got a, our foster daughter sick. And she just says, when are you coming home? I just want to be with you. That's what you do in relationships. You're with someone. But yet too, far too often, we're only with Jesus on Sunday. Or maybe we give him five minutes, you know, or 30 seconds before we eat a meal. He wants us to be with him. Do you spend that time with him? Are you devoted to learning from him, to be more like him? And you might say, up to this point in my life, you would say, I've never responded to Jesus. I've never followed Jesus. I've never been saved. Right? Or you might even say this up until this point, I've heard of Jesus, but I have rejected Jesus. Is today going to be the day that you trust Jesus and that you come to be with Jesus? We say this a lot and it's worth repeating because it's the most exclusive statement in all the Bible. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We can't earn it, right? nothing we can do to deserve it there's no one else we can follow we can't get high enough right like you get what i'm saying like there's nothing we can do we just have to trust in jesus we make it so hard don't we like just trust in jesus and so jesus calls every disciple to be with him and then he calls every disciple to be sent out by him right sometimes that looks like leaving kansas city and moving 20 hours away to plant a church. Sometimes it looks like going to Venezuela, right? Sometimes it looks like sharing the gospel in your workspace or praying with your kiddos at night so they come grow up and, and one day they'll come to know Jesus because they see Jesus in you. Remember, discipleship is a relationship before it's a task, a who before a what. But he does send us out. We spend time with him and then we're sent out by him. The Bible calls us this, we're his ambassadors. Right? We reflect his values and his, and his mission. We are his disciples. We're to look like him. We're his witnesses. We're to share Jesus with other people. We're called to go and make disciples, to share the gospel, to tell others about Jesus. We are called to live a life that imitates Jesus. The commentator James Edward went on to say this, talking about the disciples. From now on, his person, Jesus, his person and his work determine the existence of the twelve. That's denying yourself, right? For us, who Jesus is and what his mission is, that determines who we are and what we do. Church, this is this all-powerful, with all authority Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, calls us to be with him, to follow him, to be sent out by him. And church, we are called to worship him. Romans chapter 12, be living sacrifices. And we live for him. And we get to do that together this morning, right? We get to, to worship him. We get to spend time with him. We're going to get to spend time in prayer with him. But I want to do this real quick. We can't miss this opportunity. Jesus is here. We're hearing from the word of God that Jesus is here. He's all powerful. He's all authority. He is God. He came to die for you. And so the question is, what's your response going to be? What's your response going to be to him? And also, if you're a person that says, you know what, I do know Christ... But I've stopped responding to him, right? I've stopped following him. I've, I've stopped pursuing him. People could look at me and not know that I'm a follower of Jesus. Where are you at in that? 
And so if you guys would just close your eyes just for a second as we pray, and I'm just, if there's somebody in here, when I'm done praying, if there's somebody in here that say, you know what, today's the day, I'm not going to wait another second, I'm going to give my life to Jesus today. There's no other reason for me to wait, I'm going to do it today. Let's pray.